reading from um, John 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she saw, uh, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was him, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Just the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we're grateful for your word that you speak to us and you reveal yourself to us. Um, we thank you for the love that is in that. And we acknowledge, Holy Spirit, just our deep need for you in order to hear your word and receive it. And so we pray that you would do your good work in us so that we would um, come to trust Jesus more and to see and hear him more clearly. For we pray in his name. Amen. Since Christmas, we've been going through the Gospel of John together, and some of you have, have been along for that whole journey, and you might remember that one of the themes we've touched on again and again is the theme of desire. Desire. And so if you were here with us at the beginning of this series, you might remember that we talked about how one of our first desires is to be seen, to be really seen, to be recognized. Following Andy Crouch, we said that recognition is the first human quest. He points out, remember that when a, when a human baby is 
uh, firstborn, if it's a typical delivery without complications for the baby, there's usually a bit of crying, but then there's what doctors call quiet alert. And the baby becomes still and calm, and it's just searching. And it's looking for a face. It's looking for a face looking at it. And once it finds that face, it just locks on and gives it its full attention. And remember, we said that the, we noticed that the psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, says that that initial desire to be seen, to be recognized, that it really doesn't stop. He says, we are born into the world looking for someone looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. We're always searching for someone searching for us. And I wonder, wonder, what about you? Like this morning, uh, what is it that you really desire? What is it that you really want? What is it that you're really after? That's a question that we've seen Jesus ask over and over again in, in several different ways throughout the Gospel of John. To the first disciples, you remember, who left John the Baptist to begin following him. He says, you know, what do you want? What do you desire? What are you seeking? Um, to the woman at the well who is thirsty for living water, he asks this question, what are you, what are you really after? To the crowd of 5,000 who is hungry for lunch, he recognizes that they're really hungry for something much deeper, much greater. To a man who can't walk and who wants to be healed, again and again this question comes in the Gospel of John, what is it that you desire? What are you seeking? And so we've seen that Jesus cares about our desires. And that over and over again, Jesus invites us to name our desires in his presence. And he invites us to aim our desires at him. He, he kind of just offers himself to us as one who can really satisfy. And, and this has been God's way since the very beginning. You remember in the opening of the Bible story, God places humanity in a garden. And it is a place of beauty and abundance and delight. It's a place of real flourishing. And if you reflect on what it is that you really want, what your heart really longs for, I bet it was there in the garden in one way or another. I mean, think about it. Like, what is it that you really want? What does your heart long for? Like, health? Wholeness? I was there. Justice and peace and beauty? That was there. Like, not uh, natural beauty, yes, but also cultural beauty. You know, gardens are artifacts of culture. We make something of the world. Um, truth, that was there. Meaningful, creative work that contributes to the world's flourishing. That was there in the garden. And, and most, of, most important of all, uh, relationships in which we are really known and really loved. Because remember, recognition is the first human quest. We're always looking for one who is looking for us. We want, we want that face-to-face -face relationship. And that's there in the garden, too. It's, the garden is a place of like, profound relational love. The man and the woman, we read, knew each other. Uh, they really see each other. And they're not ashamed, which is remarkable. Because so often now our seeing each other really is associated with so much shame. Even better, they're seen in there, loved by God. And we get that detail that they would walk with God in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day. All of that is there in the garden, and it all goes wrong. It all goes wrong. Um, you remember humans begin to desire the gifts of God, 
without desiring God. So the snake shows up and tells them that they can have good things like God-likeness and wisdom, but they can, they can get these things by moving away from God, by moving apart from God in disobedience instead of continuing to entrust themselves to the love and care of God. And, and so they desire God-likeness, but they don't desire God himself. And the, they desire the gifts of God without wanting to abide with God in a relationship of trusting love. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like at the end of the day, what makes the garden a place of beauty and abundance and delight isn't the pretty trees and the delicious food. It's the presence of God. It's God himself. Without God in the garden, uh, everything begins to unravel and fall apart. And we've seen this story just replay itself over and over to the present day. And so you, know, you remember that we talked about how like everyone wants peace, but no one, not everyone wants the Prince of Peace. And everyone wants justice, but not everyone wants um, to submit their lives to the Lord of perfect justice. And everyone loves love, but not everyone wants to let God be the one who reveals the true meaning of love, the true nature of love. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, it's like, it's like they want the goodness of the garden, but they don't want the God of the garden. And so they hide. Instead of desiring to be with God, so often we run and hide. Well, that's, a, that's us at our worst. Um, wanting God's creation without really wanting God. Wanting the garden, but not God in it. But can we really ever shake this deep longing for God? Now, I don't, I don't think we can, really. I mean, Augustine says that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Um, you remember G.K. Chesterton says that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. There's something true about that. I mean, I think that's right, that we can muffle our longing for God and we can numb ourselves to it and we can aim our desire for God at all the wrong targets. We can distract ourselves in countless creative ways. But family, we were made for love in the garden. In the Bible story, God's people are never able to shake that off entirely. And so you can read through the prophets and you'll see this, this desire for the garden and, and this, this kind of promise that, of a future garden show up over and over again. I'll just give one example. In Isaiah, we read this, that one day the Lord will comfort all Israel's waste places and her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. So it's this beautiful prophetic image of Eden being restored, the garden being um, brought back. If you want a less prophetic and more romantic read, you might go home later this evening and light some candles and pull out your Bible and read through the Song of Songs where two lovers rendezvous in the garden to delight in one another. And there's this long tradition of interpreting this poetry uh, as a sign of the kind of relational 
intimacy and, and mutual delight that God wants with God's people. And um, I did that this past week. I read through the Song of Songs. I didn't light the candles. <laughs> it, it wasn't that steamy. But I did, I did read through the Song of Songs, and it'll make you blush. It'll make you blush. Um, but isn't that what we really want? We don't just want a pretty place. We want a person. Like, we're looking for someone who is looking for us. We, we want not just the garden, but we want, we want the God of the garden. Um, the garden with God in it. Maybe, maybe what we really want is a rendezvous in the garden with the lover of our souls. Maybe what we really want is a kiss in the garden. But the right kind of kiss. You know, Judas found Jesus in the garden and betrayed him with a kiss. That's the wrong kind of kiss. When Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders, they go into the garden, they capture Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus asked them? He says, whom do you seek? And that's, that's Jesus' trademark question about desire. He's saying, like, what do you really want? What are you really after? What are you, what are you looking for? What, what, what do you long for? And they say they want Jesus but they don't really want Jesus. They want their own security and comfort and power. Like they want Jesus only so that they can use him and then discard him. And so Judas and the soldiers and the religious leaders come to the garden and they find the lover of their souls, but they don't trust his love and they, they reject his grace. It's like they hear the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they run and hide, only their running and hiding takes the form of grabbing Jesus and um, binding him and leading him out of the garden and into the city. And we've rehearsed the rest of the story this past week. If you joined us for Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, you remember, like, we know how this story goes. Jesus has marched around from one leader to another, and eventually the crowd calls for his crucifixion. And so he's delivered over to them, and he is crucified. But don't miss this detail. Uh, at the end of John chapter 19, right before the passage that we read this morning, we read this. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And so John wants us to know that Jesus died in a garden and that Jesus was buried in a garden. It's like he wants us to see that this cross is maybe the true tree of life. Uh, maybe he wants us to see that just as one trespass led to condemnation for all people, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all people. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Just as the first Adam led us into sin and ruin in a garden, so the second Adam does his rescuing work of self-giving love. Where? In a garden. Um, family, he does that for you and me, for people who are maybe 
betraying Jesus with a kiss over and over again. Like always aiming the longing of our hearts in the wrong direction, in the wrong places, seeking after the wrong lovers. Which brings us to Easter. Mary Magdalene comes to the garden. And she sees that the, the tombstone has been rolled away. And her first reaction is to run and tell the other disciples not that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but that his body has been stolen, taken. And it's just a good reminder for us that believing in the resurrection was just as weird for people back in the first century as it is for us. Like, no one, no one was expecting this. Uh, the ancient worldviews of Jesus' day, they couldn't make sense of the resurrection any more than our modern worldviews can. Like the Greeks believed in the life after death, but they understood it in terms of like the soul escaping the prison of the body, um, leaving the material world behind. And so eternal life for the ancient Greeks was a kind of disembodied spiritual existence. And so to claim that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead wouldn't have made any sense to them at all. And is a little different for the Jews of the first century. There were some Jews who believed there would be a general, general resurrection of like all people at the end of time. Uh, other Jews didn't believe that there would be any resurrection at all. They didn't believe in the possibility of resurrection. But no one was expecting the resurrection of just one person uh, before everyone else was raised at the end. And, and so the point is that Jesus' resurrection was just as category-busting back then as it is for us today. Like first century folks were no more naturally primed to believe in Jesus' resurrection than we are. Like, believe it or not, they knew that dead people stay dead just as well as we do. <laughs> Which is why Mary's mind immediately goes to the natural explanation. Someone must have taken the body. So that's what she tells Peter and the other disciple who then race to see for themselves. And it's... <laughs> We won't talk much about this this morning, but it's just great that if John, if the beloved disciple here is John who authors the gospel, he just makes such a big deal about how much faster he is than Peter, <laughs> which is, you know, that's just, that's the ultimate, um, just the ultimate win. When you write the gospel that just, you know, memorializes your speed, you know, like Peter might be the head of the church, but you, you're a better runner. Um, <laughs> So they find the tomb empty, except for the linen cloths, and then they go home, which is interesting. Like, they don't stick around, but Mary sticks around. She stays. Something keeps Mary there. Maybe this deep longing. Like, maybe a hope beyond hope that somehow in this garden she will again encounter the lover of her soul. We might not call this quiet alert because she's weeping. <laughs> And she's confused, but she is searching, isn't she? I mean, she is searching for someone who is searching for her. Well, amazingly, angels show up, and they ask why she's weeping, and she tells them, but they're no comfort because she doesn't really want angels, does she? Like, she wants Jesus. And then he's there. The Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, she turns and he's right there. She doesn't recognize him. 
Not even when he asks this trademark question. Whom are you seeking? Right, there it is. Like, what do you desire? Who are you looking for? What are you after? She supposes he's the gardener, which is wrong on one level. But don't you see, like, on another level, it's profoundly right. Because Jesus is the gardener, and this is the garden of the Lord. And after resting in the tomb on the seventh day, it's like this is the first day of the new creation. And he has come to uproot the thorns and thistles and to replace them with blossoms and beauty. Like he has risen to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. And not recognizing him, Mary says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Like she's so determined to find Jesus. She's desperately searching for him and looking for him. And family, gosh, don't you know that you are too? Like that beneath all your other longings and desires, like this is the one you want. This is the one you want. Um, to meet this one in the garden. We're all looking for this one who is looking for us. Recognition is the first human quest, and even when we don't recognize him, he recognizes us. And so I wonder this morning, have you betrayed him like Judas did? Have you denied him like Peter? Have you, have you abandoned him like every other disciple? Still, he pursues you in love. The gardener calls your name. He knows your name, and he calls your name. Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns, and she sees him, and she fixes her eyes on the one whose eyes are fixed on her. Um, he calls her name. You see, he, he's revealing himself to her relationally, and as soon as Mary hears that personal address, she knows. She knows that it's Jesus. And she turns to him. He calls, she responds, and this family is God's converting love. Um, it's love that calls us by name. It's love that creates relationship. I mean, some of you think that you are beyond the pale, <laughs> that um, you've strayed so far that uh, there's no way this one would seek you out. You think maybe he's forgotten my name. It's been so long, but no. The gardener calls your name. And though you might be tempted to run and hide, there's no need for that because this is one who has already laid down his life for you in humble, self-giving love. And, and so, family, can you trust that the risen Jesus loves you like this? He knows your name and he calls you by name. You know, the early church began to believe in Jesus' resurrection because because of moments like this, because they personally encountered the risen Lord. Um, they didn't have, like, arguments about the reality of the resurrection ready to rehearse. Uh, they weren't just naturally primed or inclined to believe in the resurrection. They believed because um, a living, resurrected from the dead Jesus sought them out 
and met them. And it's so interesting because the way it usually goes is that the disciples don't recognize him at first in these encounters. His identity is often hidden from them. Jesus can be right there in front of them like he was with Mary, and they don't know it's him. And in one way or another, Jesus has to be the one to reveal himself. Which I take as an invitation. An invitation uh, to stay alert. To keep our eyes open to the presence of the risen Jesus among us. To keep our ears attuned to the voice of the gardener so that when he calls, we hear him. Will you permit me a birding illustration? Because I'm so cool, uh, I do a lot of bird watching. And um, one of the things I noticed earlier this year is that I was hearing a lot of eastern bluebirds. And I had never really heard eastern bluebirds before. You know, when you start birding, you start by just looking and then looking through binoculars. And then you meet someone like Jeremy and he says, you know, you've really, you really need to do as much listening, maybe more listening than you do looking. Because listening tells you what to look for. And so, you know, early on I started learning bird songs. Like, you know, there's some that are easy. Carolina Wren. Um, you all have heard a Carolina Wren, whether you know it or not. They're, they're very distinct. Uh, cardinals, you know, you, you, you learn these early, but for whatever reason, um, it was just this year, I've been birding for like, as long as I've known you, I've been birding. And it was just this year that I, that I figured out, oh, that's an Eastern bluebird. It's not like Eastern bluebirds just started singing for the first time in 2023, right? Like, they're always singing. They're always singing and my ear just wasn't attuned to their call, and so it was, it was there, and it was just kind of background noise. But now it's not background noise. I hear them, and I can turn, and I can see them. And I think that, like, I wonder, I don't know, I just wonder if something like that is going on with God in us all the time. That, that the lover of our souls is walking in the garden, and he's saying, Sophie... Hazel, Scott. I mean, he's, he's calling our Stephen. But, you know, he's calling our names, but we have to maybe practice hearing his voice or just tune ourselves to his voice so that when he calls, we're ready and we can turn and we can attend. Um, think about those newborn babies on quiet alert searching for the face, searching for them, ready to lock on when they see it. Family, Christ is risen from the dead. Um, there is an invitation to be on quiet alert for his presence, looking and listening for his voice, attuned to his invitation to abide with him, to be with him, to make our home with him, to meet him in the garden. And so listen, the gardener, calls your name. Let's pray.